You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old-world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome, everyone, to a very special episode of Pizza Quest. This episode was recorded on location in Atlantic City during this year's Northeast Pizza and Pasta and Bakery Expo. Over the course of two days, I got the chance to interview a number of luminaries in the pizza and baking world, deliver educational presentations, and talk to the judges at both the pizza and the bagel competitions. I'm Peter Reinhardt. This is uh, not only am, am I at the um, at the Northeast Pizza, Pasta, and Artisan Baking Show, the 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 expo here, uh, but we're giving presentations and we're recording them for podcasts on the Pizza Quest podcast show. And so some of the talks are going to be on pizza, some are going to be on bread and baking. My background is in the baking world and it kind of leaps over into the pizza world. And uh, what we were noticing over the last 20 years is how many people have moved from bread to pizza or from pizza to bread. Because ultimately, what is pizza but dough with something on it? Pizza dough is dough. It's bread. But So there's a lot of parallels here. And uh, there are two subjects that I'm very passionate about and love. Um, and I teach my, my day job is teaching at Johnson & Wales University. I'm at the Charlotte campus, although I used to be at the Providence campus, but I helped open the Charlotte campus in North Carolina because uh, I love living in North Carolina. And, um, um, and I, so I teach bread baking, but we do pizza workshops there as well. And there's a lot of things that I've learned over the years. I've been with Johnson & Wales almost 25 years, and prior to that, five years at the California Culinary Academy. Uh, prior to that, my wife and I had a bakery and a restaurant in uh, Santa Rosa, California. So we, we we go back a long way in this world and have seen a lot of changes and developments over time, the evolution, so to speak, uh, even though it's not the right use of the word evolution, but, but it's really the evolving of uh, both bread and pizza, you know, in in our modern culture and how it's changed and how those two worlds of bread and pizza are interacting and affecting each other. Uh, so what I started to do, I got this idea after being there for so many years that, you know, we were in a perfect position to um, put on events, uh, uh, bring together some key thought leaders within the bread world, since bread is what we teach as our primary, pizza is sort of an adjunct of bread there. But so the, the, the symposium that I developed is called the International Symposium on Bread. And we've, we've done about four of them. Uh, the last one was done virtually. It did it online because of the pandemic. Uh, prior to that, it was done as a three-day intensive on campus, and people would fly in from all over the, the country, and we'd bring in speakers from all over the world for it. 
to talk about the theme, the, the uh, overriding theme was the future of bread. And so that's what its purpose was. And as a result, we accumulated a tremendous amount of intellectual property, you know, I, things that, that, that are, are, are far-reaching. Some of them are here right now, you know, and are happening. Things we talked about four years ago are now, you know, kind of breaking on the shore. Um, but the, I, the whole idea was, was to be ahead of the wave, to see where it's all going. Bread is a big subject that's a very controversial subject. It's got many facets, many levels of meaning and, and importance to people in their lives. Um, so the whole point of the symposium was, was to chart all that. And, uh, and so we just completed last year the, the virtual version in which I did every week. We had two, Monday and Wednesday, I think is what we did it. Uh, we had two presentations a week that we did over Zoom as opposed to bringing people in. It was easier to get more speakers for the Zoom. It wasn't quite as great as having everyone in the same room together and sharing meals together. Uh, so there are different dynamics, but we were able to get a lot, a lot of speakers. And, uh, and so I'm going to... Um, talk today a little bit about what I call the key takeaways from that event, from that, the, the things we learned over the years, but specifically, you know, last year in, in particular, and other things that I've noticed uh, and observed in the bread world um, that might be uh, harbingers, and then also try to take questions and answers from you about any things that you may have, questions you might have or, or observations that you may have made yourself. So before we get started with all that, let me just ask this to canvas the room, and I'll repeat, if you have questions for me, I'll repeat them in the mic for the listeners, because uh, there'll be a lot more people listening afterwards than are in the room today um, as we broadcast. Once we, once we post it on HRN, which is uh, which is short for Heritage Radio Network, um, it will live forever there as a podcast, as part of the Pizza Quest podcast. All you have to do is just go to Pizza Quest, uh, and you'll find that, you know, a whole archive of shows that we've done. Most of them are interviews with well-known people. Um, but how many of you are in the baking business in this room? And in this room, there are seven, there are probably about 25 people. So about 50% of the hands went up. You're in, and uh, those of you who are not in the baking business, uh, are you in the pizza business? How many are in the pizza business? Some, some, and, and crossovers, how many of you do both pizza and breads? <laughs> some the number of hands, about 20% of the hands went up. This is great. So we're seeing a lot more of that. So one of the things we're, we're observing in the pizza world is that a lot of pizza people are getting into bread and a lot of bread people are getting into pizza. And so the, these worlds are coming together. And it, it makes sense for them to come together because, again, uh, my definition of pizza is dough with something on it. And it's a pretty broad definition and a lot of things could fall in that. But uh, And not, not everybody shares that definition with me. But uh, but I think that there's the, the, the knowledge that exists, you know, for creating a, a great pizza – uh, which begins with a great crust, and that's my premise, is uh, you can't have a great pizza without a great crust. You can have a creative, inventive pizza with cool toppings, but if the crust isn't killer, then the pizza is going to be nothing more than interesting. It won't be memorable. My goal is when, I, when, we, when we talk about pizza is always searching for the memorable. I call the perfect pizza is one that's memorable, that you just can't stop obsessing about and thinking about, and the same with bread. When you have something that's of that quality, um, then then it, it creates new benchmarks. So we're always looking for what are the new benchmarks that define greatness in the in both the baking of bread and the baking of pizzas, and and that's what I read about is sort of this never-ending search for identifying what those qualities are and how do you teach people to achieve them. Um, so hopefully, maybe some of the things we'll talk about today could be useful to you. But please, you know, interact with me. We'll, we'll, uh, I'll repeat your questions for the, the listening audience as well. Uh, so we have people here who are baking. Those of you who are baking, how many of you are baking breads? 
this bread big part of your so about 80% of the hands went up in the room and um and we'll and we'll, we'll come back later in canvas a little bit about what what the kind of things that you're doing but uh I'll just a couple of introductory comments the so this whole bread movement in in America I think really took off in the early 90s. It started in the 70s and 80s with little pop-up things in, in the bread world, people making breakthroughs and developing better breads than we'd grown up with, et cetera. But it wasn't until the 90s when it became a movement. We called it the artisan bread movement. Um, any of you members of the Bread Bakers Guild of America? Any hands? Uh, so if you're not, and I see no hands going up, so the, I would suggest if you're interested in raising your game on bread, Consider joining. It doesn't cost very much uh, annual dues, and it, it gets you access to this incredible wealth of knowledge and quarterly newsletters that always have new information and, and, and opportunities to go to workshops and things like that. But most of the breakthroughs in the, uh, I'll call the North American uh, bread movement uh, that allowed this artisan wave to expand, you know, as a result of the work of the Bread Bakers Guild, where they were able to bring master bakers over from uh, Europe, uh, the knowledge of those bakers, uh, creating workshops, trainings, programs, uh, documenting it in these newsletters and technical pieces and explaining sort of the, the principles of what differentiates good bread from great bread, or even good bread from mediocre and bad bread, which is what we kind of had settled for for so long. And, and so we learned a lot over these years, and it's grown, and a lot of creative people have come out of it uh, and have taken the knowledge and pushed into new ter territories, new frontiers of what's possible in the, in the baking and bread world. Um, the focus has been mainly bread categories, but not just artists, not just like hearth breads, but all kinds of breads, including pastry-style breads. It hasn't been much as – it's not as much a pastry – chef movement as much as it is a baking and bread movement. But a lot of the principles carry over. And um, uh, and so what happened was, was a lot of pizza makers, since they're working with a bread dough product to make their pizzas, started to realize that there's a few breakthrough pizzerias that are doing extraordinary work. And I, you know, I wrote about them in an early book called American Pie. Again, my search for the perfect pizza. And other people started writing about them. And uh, there have been some really great pizza books in the last few years and more and more great pizzerias. When I wrote American Pie, I would say there were maybe 25 pizzerias in America that met my criteria of what I would call a destination pizzeria, one that, you know, you just had to go to because it, it, it represented benchmarks of how great a pizza could actually be. And there were certain ones that kind of became the, the most well-known. Uh, one of the breakthrough pizzerias back when I first wrote about it, it was had been around for about 10 years called Pizzeria Bianco in Phoenix, Arizona. That And he just got featured on a Netflix, you know, uh, uh, documentary on that uh, chef's table series, Chris Bianco. And there was something about his pizzas, even though it was the same ingredients, flour, water, salt, yeast, cheese, sauce, that people would leave there with their perception of what pizza could be changed. There were other things, places along the way that also helped to bump that around along. But Chris was a breakthrough place. Um, and, um, and, and one of the things that I realized in having that pizza was just what made his pizza so great was the crust was just extraordinary. It was like you, you said, I never, I don't think I've ever had a pizza with the, with the crust that did this to me that was this good, that was memorable. Um, and so other people wanted to be able to replicate that and follow that. Well, the same thing was happening in breads. You know, we were having, we were experiencing baguettes 
which America is not that well known for, uh, of the Euro- of a European quality. We've had ciabattas, all these artisan-style breads, other kinds of breads, even soft sandwich breads. And companies like Dave's Killer Bread came along, and all sorts of you know companies were changing, moving the bar, moving the bar of what's possible with bread. And why were they able to move the bar? What were they doing that uh, made the difference? And um, and what was it that they were doing that could help other people who wanted to be able to function at that level of quality and bar and have that same kind of impact on their customers. Um, And so that's what we started to kind of study, and that's what the symposium was about. And then we were saying, well, how far can this go? How how far can we push it? What is the future of bread? In addition to the fact that we also had challenges. You know, there was the the anti-carb movement, the anti-gluten movement. There was, you know, all sorts of other issues. There was certainly the legitimate gluten-free movement for people that really had uh, true intolerances to gluten, as well as those people who thought they had intolerances to either bread or gluten, but maybe it turned out to be something else. But but it was, whether it's real or imagined, it was all it was still real because it was happening. And uh, and then there was you know the whole grain movement, and there was firm, and then there's all this new understanding of what fermentation can do to affect the quality of your bread. And so how do we put all that together? And uh, and that's what I've been working on, is trying to kind of articulate and, and categorize things in a way that makes them understandable to, to folks. Um, so a couple of basic premises. One is uh, the key to bread is understanding fermentation. You know, it's, it's a fermented the bread that we call leavened or raised breads. It's, it's about fermentation. Uh, not everything that I'm going to talk about today pertains to things like quick breads, uh, breads that are fermented with like baking powder and baking soda, which would be banana breads and, you know, those kind of zucchini breads, which are wonderful in their own right, but they're more like muffins, you know, they're muffin breads. Uh, and they're delicious, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about breads that are leavened by either yeast or natural fermentation, which is still yeast. So it's really about leavened products. And why is that it's unique, a unique category in its own right? And what does leavening do to affect that quality? And then why is it that bread as a category itself is so important to us in our, in our lives, in our, inner, in our inner lives as well as our external lives? You know, why does bread have such a hold on us? Why is it such an important product as a food and as a symbol and as an image and everything else? All these things are working, you know, at once. So we'll touch on a lot of that today. Tomorrow, I'll be giving a talk around the same time tomorrow um, that I forget how they put it in the catalog, but it's basically, I call it bread as metaphor. You know, it's going to be more about the understanding bread in a deeper way that uh, helps us understand a little bit of our own interpersonal journeys of transformation, how bread as a symbol of transformation uh, can affect our own understanding of our own transformative journeys as human beings. It's a little bit more, you know, uh, philosophical than today. Today, it's going to be a little bit more about the practical side of things. And uh, hopefully over the next, uh, you know, hour or so, we'll talk about some of the factors that, that and if I forget anything, uh, please ask. Or if I, if, if I skip something that you want to hear about, just let me know, and we'll talk about that. All right, so before I get started, any questions about any of that, where we're headed, what we're going to do? Yes. Yeah. Well, that, that's a good question. The question was, if you, if you can't get the Chris, Chris Bianco's place, Pizzeria Bianco, which he's now opened one in L.A. as well, uh, but, it, but Phoenix is the mother house of his thing. Yeah, not everyone can get there, obviously. Is there anything comparable 
on the East Coast or anywhere else. Well, when I wrote that book, like I said, there were only maybe 25 pizzerias that were that were destinations. Some of them were old-time places like Frank Pepe's and Sally's in New Haven, but they were old-school pizzerias that were benchmarks for, the, for various reasons. Uh, but since that time, I would say now, if there were 25 or 30 then that were great pizzerias doing, you know, memorable work, there are probably hundreds now that are doing memorable because of this exchange of knowledge and the advancement of the craft itself, the appreciation of the craft of bread and pizza both. And I'll, and I'll just use bread now because we're in a bread workshop, but it, it, it applies to bread or pizza because they're the pretty much crossover products. Um, there are more of them, a lot more of them because the movement has grown. And, and, and it's grown because the knowledge has gotten out there that, that people wanted to have to be able to accomplish that. So I can think of a couple places, and I don't want to leave anyone out because there's so many good ones. And But the, some of the ones that are getting more noteworthy is in New Jersey. There's Raza. Raza, uh, which is he's doing a naturally fermented pizza, meaning he's using a sourdough starter primarily is his primary fermentation. Um, Dan Richer, and again, some people will compare him. They'll say he's kind of like the Pizzeria Bianco of the East Coast. He's a newer newer operation, but he's making it, and he just has a, his own book out recently. He's a big, big player. Uh, Anthony Mangieri just got voted one of the top two pizzerias in the world by some, you know, uh, some journalistic, you know, poll uh, in New York City, and that's Una Pizza Napolitana in New York City. Um, again, naturally leavened. It's, this is a theme that we're going to talk about today. Is this is one of the big future of bread movements is, is natural fermentation, which for shorthand we'll say sourdough fermentation, is the future of bread. We're going to see more and more. It's not going to get smaller. It's going to get bigger. Nothing wrong with yeast fermentation also, but uh, but if you want to go to the ultimate frontier of bread, natural fermentation gets you to the ultimate product for, for a lot of reasons. Question. Yeah, you mentioned like the great crust in pizza, and uh, if you make a, a, a particular formula for bread, and then you, uh, you do it, and you cook it in different types of ovens, they, they change. Yeah. Well, so the question is, does the oven affect the and, and how important and how necessary is it to achieve those results? So, for instance, P P Chris Bianco was doing wood fire pizzas before wood fire pizzas became the big rage, where everyone was doing them. He was doing them a little ahead of uh, the curve. Uh, is that what made his pizzas great? It was a factor, but no. Anthony Mangieri, wood fire pizza, but th those are all done in the Neapolitan, the true Naples style. That's the way you would get a pizza in Naples out of a wood fired oven. Is it a, is it absolutely necessary to use a wood fired oven to get a pizza of that caliber? My answer, short, quick answer, would be no. It's not absolutely necessary, but it can be a wonderful contributing factor. It gives you properties that maybe a gas oven or an electric oven is not going to give you. Although the technology has advanced as well, and I've had pizzas out of electric ovens. Uh, so in Phoenix, I'm sorry, in uh, Portland, Oregon, Brian Spangler, who very often comes to these events but wasn't able to come this year, um, at Apisa Shoals, he's always made his pizzas in electric ovens. And his pizzas are destination pizzas. They're, they're, they're wow-quality pizzas. Um, there's many, many places that are making great pizzas that are, that are made in other kinds of ovens. So, so wood fire, depending on the style of pizza or the style of bread, you don't have to have a wood-fired oven to make the, the greatest bread in the world. Most breads are not made in wood-fired ovens, but there are a few bakeries that do wood-fired breads. But that, that's only one factor, and it's not the most important factor in my opinion. The most important factor is understanding fermentation and how fermentation affects the flavor properties of the dough itself. Does that answer your question a little bit? Yes, yeah, sort of. 
Okay. And we'll, we'll, we'll keep talking around it until we, we uh, can nail it. Um, any other comments or questions before we get going? Yes. 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 Uh, yeah. I'll repeat this question for the radio people. Um, so, so you're you're saying. Yeah. Well, I see. So, are you asking? Is the smokiness of the oven itself a factor in the flavor, and is it and is it uh, is it necessary? Is it a, is it a contribute? Aside from the taurine, because I'm assuming that the smoke doesn't add, has this been fully discussed by them? Uh, what I was what I saw, and I did some. We we had, in addition to our interviews on Pizza Quest, I, for when we first launched Pizza Quest over ten years ago, we went out in the field and actually did video, you know, uh, doc, mini documentaries and interview on site. And one of one of the people we interviewed was uh, Anthony Mangieri, you know, from Una Pizza Napolitana, who was uh, at the time was already, you know, had a reputation for being, you know, one of the, you know, one of the the, the big players, and uh, and more so even now that more people have discovered him. But uh, when we were watching, we were with the cameras watching the pizzas. He would put his uh, pizza on the deck. He'd put a little, take some sawdust from the from his woodpile and throw it on the on the on the wood and get a big puff of smoke. And we would, and he'd say, "Watch this." And we'd look inside, and we could see that the smoke hovered; it would rise immediately to the dome of the of the pizza oven, and it would it would never touch the the pizza itself. The smoke never touches the pizza. Does it? Does the pizza have a smoky flavor to it? Mainly because of the heat, the intensity of the heat of the oven, not because the smoke was infusing the pizza. But but most but, but and there's a lot of drama and a lot of theater in all of that. But more importantly, he did this. He did that because by getting that that little spike of heat from the sawdust, it kept the oven temperature hot. And so the key to a great Neapolitan pizza is the super hot oven, and it can be baked in 60 to 90 seconds or whatever, um, as opposed to American-style pizzas that typically would go five to seven minutes you know, in the oven, bake longer and slower. So how much of the wood fire, of the flavor of a wood-fire baked pizza is a result of the wood and the smoke and all the other factors, how much of it is a factor of the intense heat of that oven that makes that a different kind of pizza? When a, a, a smoky or a, a, a charred pizza comes out of a wood-fired oven and you got the, the leoparding spots and the, some of the spots are caramel and some are, are almost black and, you know, uh, some of that imparts flavor. Um, and they, but then when the pizza cools, the crust, which was very crisp at the beginning, starts to get very, very soft, like any kind of bread as it cools, this crust gets softer. Whereas a pizza that, that bakes for five to seven minutes in an oven, and by the way, Chris Bianco's pizzas baked in a wood-fired oven would typically bake four to five minutes, not the Neapolitan 60-second style pizza. Nancy Silverton, one of the great pizzerias in America, in L.A., Pizzeria Mozza, um, her pizzas bake six to eight minutes uh, in a wood-fired oven. 
so they have a lower temperatures. And these are all choices that the operators made. Just like the bread bakers have choices to make in terms of how they ferment their dough, there's no one master formula that is the one that's the only way to do it. There's a zillion ways to accomplish great, memorable product. And so the things that are the factors are understanding the function of fermentation, how it works and affects the properties of the ingredients that are being used. And if your goal is, and what I tell my students, you know, in my bread classes at Johnson Wales, is the first thing I tell them is, is that for the however many weeks that I'm going to have them in this particular bread class before they move on to their pastry class and their chocolate class and their sugar class and all this other stuff, is as I want you to understand that your mission as a baker, I call it the baker's mission, is to evoke the full potential of flavor trapped in the grain, trapped in the flour. There's flavor in flour that generally is tasteless if you take flour and put it in your mouth because you haven't transformed it yet. And so that the art of baking bread is a, an, an art of transforming ingredients. I call bread as a transformational product. And then we're going to talk more about this tomorrow when we talk about bread as a symbol of transformation. But, um, but bread is a transformational product because in order for flour to become bread, to journey from wheat to eat, it has to go through a series of transformations for the flavor to emerge. And when it emerges properly, when under the hands of a, you know, a, a really g- terrific baker, you can not only transform the ingredients, but transform the, the people who are eating it because they, it's like almost like a magic thing happens. It's, it's s- what comes out of the oven is not what went in the oven. And, and the, the reason for that has to do with functionality. It's, very, it's not mystical. I mean, there's a mystical interpretation of it, but it's not it's, – it's science. There's science involved too. So there's very literal aspects, and then there's metaphorical and poetic and philosophical and mystical aspects of it as well. But bread, more than almost any other product, goes through a series of transformations, more transformations than anything else. Even wine is a transformational product because you're taking grapes and turning them into wine. Cooking is transformation. You're taking things that were once alive, combining them, heating them, adding heat and salt and acid and all sorts of other things, and you're transforming them into something that didn't exist before you, as the intermediary, as the baker or the cook, you know, did something to them. Bread has even more transformations than any of the others to go from wheat tasteless wheat to indigestible dough to unbelievable bread. And, and, um, and, and that's what fascinates me about bread. And I think, and then as we understand those things at that sort of more poetic level, we also have to know that in order to get there, you have to understand the literal things that you need to do to make it happen. And then as we get back into this today's topic, the future of bread, what is it that, you know, what are the territories that we haven't yet seen? We're seeing bread right now being made um, in this world, uh, in this current time, the, maybe the greatest bread that's ever been made in the history of mankind. We, we can't, we don't know for sure because we didn't live in the Roman times how great the bread was then. But from what we can tell and when we read about some of these things, the quality of bread and the amount of bread that's made at the super high level, that, that's, that spectacular level, you could say, is at an all-time high. So is there any more room? Where, where can it go if we're already making the greatest bread ever seen before? And we're seeing that there are still people pushing the envelope, pushing the boundaries of what's possible in the realm of bread. But at the practical side of running a business about bread, 
you may it's it's not about just making the best bread that was ever made. It's making bread that people love and will buy and pay money for, so that you can stay in business. And so it's finding that sort of balance and sweet spot between all of those. But but in today's you know times, people are willing to pay more for something that's new and different and and uh, seems to um, again uh, benchmark create new benchmarks of possibility in that realm. So I want to kind of just I'm going to read through some of the presentations that we had and talk maybe just a little bit of the highlights of the, the takeaway, call the key takeaways from the International Symposium of Bread, one of which I already mentioned was that one of the most important takeaways because we saw it as a recurring theme uh, during the, the symposiums, all the symposiums, was that each year the function and, per, and, and role of sourdough fermentation got more and more uh, uh, important, became bigger. It was growing and not – it wasn't like a, a, a fad. It was a trend that was – that was uh, that we're seeing really no end in sight. One of the themes, one of the, the presentations that was talking about sourdough, uh, since the theme of the, the symposium was the future of bread, um, he took the, the position that the future of bread lies in its past. The future of bread lies in its past because before yeast was developed, commercial yeast was developed 150 years ago by people like the Fleischmann brothers, uh, there was no commercial yeast. You had – the only fermentation there was was natural leavening called – that we call sourdough, you know. And, and, and essentially it was capturing the wild yeast and bacteria that exist in nature, you know, um, uh, growing them, you know, capturing them in, in – uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, nourishing them to be able to – create a seed of of leaven that could be injected into a piece of dough that would raise the dough and change its flavor. Um, so it's the same process, whether it's sourdough or commercial yeast, it's still yeast that's doing the creating the carbon dioxide that causes the bread to rise. It's acids that still cause the flavors to develop, acids from bacteria. Bacterial fermentation is different from yeast fermentation. And sourdough breads have more of the bacterial fermentation happening parallel to the yeast fermentation than commercial yeast. So commercial yeast tends to be, makes the, the thing happen faster because in a small teaspoon of commercial yeast, you've got you know maybe millions of cells of active living yeast, whereas it would take this much sourdough, like a big wad of sourdough to get anywhere near that much living yeast. Um, and, and so it can be done faster with commercial yeast, but you don't get the nuance a flavor that you get from bacterial fermentation happening simultaneously, and and so there's trade-offs. You get you get more bread in less time. Uh, you, you you sacrifice some of the the complexity of flavor that you could get from natural fermentation. Uh, it turns out later on we're seeing in more recent times that there's other trade-offs. You're not getting the digestibility on a fast rising bread. You don't get the digestibility that you get in a long slow rising bread because there's these as, as part of the fermentation process, the starches in the flour are being broken apart by enzymes. Acids are also breaking things down. Basically, fermentation itself is, is, is pre-digesting your bread. So the more that you can pre-digest it to a point um, without destroying its function of being able to hold its shape, um, the, more, the, the easier it is on your body. So some of what may be perceived as gluten insensitivity, it could be because the gluten hasn't had enough time to be affected by these other things, but it could also be uh, from other things in the flour, in the wheat, that are also difficult to digest. Um, 
uh, what they call FODMAPs, you know, different fermentable oligosaccharides you know, that that respond to longer fermentation better. So so there's, there could be a lot of reasons why bread has been a difficult product for people to digest uh, and faster bread more so than – and there are some people who are truly celiac, uh, you know, in – uh, in able, in, incapable of digesting gluten because of bio, for for you know personal reasons of uh, of their own biology, um, that no amount of fermentation is going to solve for them. They just have to be gluten free. Uh, but there are a lot of people who are finding that they can eat naturally fermented bread, whereas they can't eat other kinds of breads. There are uh, people that we, we, we mentioned this in our last workshop who go to Italy and they come back and they go, why is it that when I go to Italy, I can eat the bread, but when I come to America and I eat the bread, I get sick? You know, what, is it, a, it's the bread different there? Is it because I'm walking more? Is it, is it, is it the air of Italy that just makes me healthy? I, you know, there's all these um, questions that are, are hard to answer. Um, but if there was one answer that might make sense, it's that they, they probably use longer, slower fermentation for the breads that they're eating over there. And, and so for that reason, in addition to flavor, flavor always is the number one reason why people will love a product, but health and nutrition and wellness and digestibility are a big part of it and a growing factor in why people choose certain foods. And so these are all things. So sourdough and natural fermentation is a growing trend. So those of you who are making bread, how many of you are already doing natural types of fermentation, we'll call natural or sourdough fermentations. So about uh, about a fourth of the hands went up in the room for those who are listening. Um, how many of you are making breads with just yeast and not and not doing any natural sourdough fermentation? Only a couple hands. So so there aren't that many of you that are that are not doing sourdough already. So you already know about sourdough. How many of you came into sourdough though recently? If those of you who are doing it, how many of you just got into it recently? Just recently, just recently? There's a couple hands that went up there. So I'll just say that categorically that that's one of the major takeaways was the growing importance of natural fermentation, that the future of bread lies in its past, the way it was, the way it was fermented prior to the, the advent of commercial yeast. And then in addition, to commercial yeast is never, it's not going to go away, uh, but, it's, uh, but this is a, a category that's growing. A question. That's a good question. The question is, does a pre-ferment, like a, a sponge or a poolish or a biga, um, and, and think of it, sourdough starter is a type of pre-ferment also, um, and and more so. You know, it's 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 like the ultimate sour. It's the ultimate pre-ferment. Um, but yes, so when you pre-ferment dough, uh, a, a poolish is like a, a sponge, equal parts flour and water that pre-ferments for either overnight or for a number of hours before you put it into your final dough. Um, taking a piece of old dough from today's batch and throwing it into tomorrow's dough is another type of pre-ferment. Um, using a biga, which is a piece of dough that doesn't have any salt in it. It only has a tiny bit of yeast and, and flour and water, but that has been given, you know, anywhere from 6 to 24 hours to ripen and ferment. And adding that to your dough is a type of pre-ferment. All of these are ingredients that age your dough and allow enzyme activity to happen within the flour. So it starts to, again, break down the, the starches, the complex starches, and release some of the natural sugars that are trapped in those starches. I say, remember, the mission of the baker is to evoke the full potential of flavor trapped in the grain. So it's given the, more time to release those flavors that are trapped. And then, and then when you add that piece of aged dough to a new dough, 
you've basically quantum aged your dough. Your dough that came off the mixer five minutes ago is not a five-minute dough. It is now has some of the properties of a six to seven hour dough because of the old dough and the pre-fermented dough that you put in it. Some of which is by being pre-fermented is, you know, has some of these digestibility factors as well, but not all, you know, it's not. And, and then, so then you still have to then, it basically gets you further down the, it kicks the can further down the road to allow things to happen. Wait, let me just uh, switch over and then we'll come back to you. Yeah. There you go. The question is, yeah, it's really the, he's saying it's really the time as well as no matter how you start. And and so he, what I do is uh, when I'm explaining it to my students, I draw a triangle and I say, here's the baking triangle. And at the cardinal points of the triangle, and we'll, and I'm going to draw this tomorrow in tomorrow's workshop. I'll put it up there. Uh, time, temperature, and ingredients. These are the three cardinal points that we can control to some extent. Time we can definitely control. Temperature we can control. And the ingredients themselves we can control to the degree of, the, of our access to ingredients. But anything that affects one point on that triangle is going to affect the other points on the triangle. So a dough that could be made, you can make a bread in you know, flour, water, salt, yeast, and let it rise. And four hours later, you can have a loaf of bread. But if you add time to it, if you slow the fermentation down by, by lowering the temperature so the yeast acts more slowly on the dough, uh, you can change the time that it takes to make it. And the trade-off is that in the, by adding more time, you're allowing these other flavor components to develop, to evoke, to pull more flavor out of the flour. So you're trading off by slowing it down. So we always say slow-rise bread is usually better tasting than fast-rise bread because it's allowed more of the natural ingredients. Now, if you're going to put a lot of sugar in your dough or a lot of butter and things like that, then time isn't as much of a factor. You can get a good-tasting bread because a lot of the flavor is not the fermented uh, flour, but it's the other ingredients that you're tasting. Um, but but just stick to the basic breads, you know, we'll call it like plain bread, flour, water, salt, yeast. That's, that's where it all begins is understanding that in that baking triangle, you know, uh, time, temperature, and ingredients are the keys that you affect, you, affecting one point affects the other points. And in the center, you know, of the, the I write in the center of the triangle, you know, the baking. Uh, all of this falls under the definition of baking and, uh, and the technical definition of baking, just to get a, this sort of on the table, is that the, the, the textbook definition of baking is the application of heat to a product in an enclosed environment, meaning the oven, for the purpose of driving off moisture. That's what baking is, is you're driving off moisture. So a dough that goes into the oven weighing, let's say it weighs one pound, because a lot of that weight is water, uh, that's not going to come out of the oven at one pound. It's probably going to come out at about 13, 12 to 13 ounces, because a lot of that water is going to evaporate off. But it, it's necessary for the water to evaporate for the transformations to take place in the dough that allow it to go from dough to bread. We've already done one transformation. We've taken flour and transformed it into dough by mixing it with water, salt, yeast, and we take and we make a clay, kind of a clay that we enliven with leaven. Leaven means to enliven, leaven, enliven. We bring it to life, in other words. So we bring a piece of clay to life. This is part of that transformational journey. So the first transformation is we take something that was once alive, wheat, we harvest it, which means we basically kill it. We destroy its life-giving properties by we cut down the grass itself, so that you know, and we kind of plow that under. We collect the seeds, which still have life-giving properties, but we crush them at the mill. So we destroy the life-giving properties of the seeds. 
So now we've suddenly taken a living thing or some, or a seed that could make more living things and made it incapable of creating more life by crushing it. And, but what we, then when we add water and salt to it and turn it into like this piece of clay of what we call dough and inject that dough or infuse that dough with leaven, we bring it back to life. The leaven is a living organism. The yeast is a living organism. So we basically have replaced what the living organism was as a, as a seed and replaced it with another organism that kind of brings it back to life. You can almost say it's like a, the, it's a zombie. You know, the yeast is a zombie in, the, in that dough, but it's bringing it back to life. And in the process of it bringing it back to life, it's changing its nature, its characteristics, it's transforming it into something that ultimately will deliver flavor. But it takes time for that flavor to emerge. Then the final transformation this living dough is developing character and flavor, and then you take it to the oven, and the final transformation is you ap apply heat in the baking. And the application of heat not only drives off moisture, but it transforms the dough into bread. It goes into the oven, I'll say as a caterpillar, it comes out of the oven as a butterfly. It's what went in is not what came out. It goes in as dough, comes out as bread. But in order for that to happen, it has to the leaven has to die. The leaven has to give up its life. So it goes in alive, comes out dead, but goes in as dough and comes out as bread. And that's these are the, the transformations, the trade-off that's happening. And that's all, ha you know, at the very poetic level, it's very, it's wonderful. And it's one of the reasons that explains why bread is so culturally, uh, you know, important in our, in our lives and sociologically important. But it also helps to explain that why at the literal level of taking dough and turning it into bread, you need heat. Because in the oven, very literal scientific transformations are taking place. One of those transformations is um, that sugar that's in the dough, and remember, even if you didn't add sugar to your dough, there's natural sugar in the wheat. And the longer it's had to ferment, uh, you know, as long as you don't over-ferment it, you're releasing a lot of those sugars. Then those sugars can caramelize. And when they and, and they caramelize at 325 degrees approximately, and they start to turn brown. And then there's another kind of caramelization. The proteins can caramelize. We call it the Maillard reaction uh, or the Maillard reaction. And that's, a, that's another kind of caramelization where, sh where sugar, where things can turn brown. Things, the, the, the proteins can turn brown. Um, and so... But the only place on a loaf of bread that gets that hot is the crust. And, and so the main transformation for caramelization takes place on the surface, which is why the outside can be brown while the inside still stays light in color. All right, so that's one transformation. Sugars caramelize. That's, that's not mystical. That's not poetic. That's literal. Proteins also transform. When proteins heat up above 165 degrees, they unfurl. They, we call it denaturing. A protein denatures. It starts. It goes from being its coiled up little muscle. A protein's kind of coiled up like this, and, and gluten is a type of protein. That's the main protein in bread. It's coiled up, but as it heats, it kind of unfolds. It relaxes. It opens up, and it kind of creates a weave and, and a network, a matrix within the inside of the the dough that we then identify later when we cut the dough as sort of the webbing of the dough, the little, the holes, the little air pockets that are surrounded by threads of protein, of gluten. That's, we call that coagulation. Proteins coagulate. That's another, that's a transformation. It, it can't happen until the proteins reach 165. Well, that happens earlier than the third transformation. The final transformation is starches 
starches have to, um, uh, what do we say? We have coagulation, we have caramelization, and we have gelatinization. Starches gelatinize. And what a gelatinization is, is that starches will get, as they get hotter and hotter, they absorb the moisture around them. They suck up the moisture until they can't hold anymore. And then they burst. And when they burst, they thicken. So the thickening of the bread, uh, going from sort of the starchy nature to something that's very smooth and custard-like and almost uh, tastes like, like uh, well, we call, it, we, we call it gelatinization because it has sort of tastes almost like gelatin, but it's not gelatin. It's, it's, it gelatinizes. It becomes smooth and creamy in our mouth and doesn't taste starchy anymore. All three of those things have to happen for dough to become bread. That doesn't happen to starches until they get to at least 180 degrees. 180 degrees is the gel point. And, and up to about 200 degrees, they can continue to burst and create more of this gelatinized effect. So in order for dough to become bread, the outside has to hit you know, somewhere at least 325 you can bake the bread in, uh, uh, below that temperature. You won't get as much browning. But if you want good, rich browning, you get you know you have to be at least over 325. The starches, ha- the proteins have to get to 165, and the starches have to get to 180. So a baker to to, know, to prove to himself that the bread is baked might stick a thermometer in the center of the loaf, and if the center of the bread is not at 180 degrees, then he or she will know that it still needs more time to bake because it hasn't fully gelatinized. And then once they get it past the gelatinization point, then these three transformations have occurred. And then, and that's uh, of the, we'll go into more of this tomorrow, but the, of the 12 stages of baking, the 10th stage is baking, not the 12th. The 12th stage is eating. It's, it's I say from wheat to eat. It's a journey from wheat to eat. And, and, and in production, production baking, we say the 12th stage is packaging, but packaging for the purpose of, so people can eat it. But the 11th stage in between 10 and, and, and 12 is cooling. So cooling is kind of like an extension of baking because, remember, the definition of baking is to evaporate moisture, to drive off moisture uh, so that the internal temperatures can get hot enough to gelatinize and coagulate. With all that moisture, it takes a lot longer for those things to happen. So the moisture is evaporating. All these things are – it's this drama going on inside that we don't have to think about. It's just happening. Um, but cooling means it's still evaporating moisture. It's about 100, 200 degrees in the center of that loaf. While it's that hot, more moisture is evaporating. If you cut the bread right out of the oven, it's going to seem a little bit underbaked because there's still a lot of moisture trapped in there. But over the next 20 to 40 minutes as it's cooling, more moisture is evaporating. And by the time it cools down to room temperature, the matrix formed by the coagulated proteins solidifies. And essentially, you've got a solid piece of foam because it's aerated, it's got bu- air bubbles in there, carbon dioxide bubbles that have expanded it, and you, but it solidifies as it cools because the proteins firm up as they get cooler. And, it ta- and that's what, you know, what we eat is bread. So we don't think about all this when we eat a bread because it's so simple, it's so basic, it's so fundamental to our lives, but all this is happening. It's, it's, it's fascinating as you, get, as you kind of peel back the layers of the onion to see what's going on in the, in the bread. So the, this is all fundamental information that then informs what's going on in the future of bread. What's next? What's, what's the future of bread? So uh, again, I'm throwing it out there so that we have sort of a common um, understanding of the process, of the functionality of all these ingredients as we go on. And if, again, if I go past, if I talk, speak out about something that, um, and you're not sure what I'm talking about or if it's unclear, the, the, the premise of what I'm saying, then let me stop me and let me know. 
and we'll uh, and I'll try to explain it a little bit more. And I, I want to be conscious of time. So it's uh, 11:05. So we've got wow, we kill an hour already because I started late. You're right. Um, I, I'd like to try to finish by 11:30 uh, if we can, but I'll stay as long as you want me to. Um, so we had a number of guests, some very well-known bakers uh, during our symposiums over the years, not just bakers, but artists, uh, you know, scientists, uh, microbiologists, all sorts of things. Um, one of our, we kicked off last year's uh, virtual symposium with Apollonia Poilan, the daughter of the famous bread baker, Lionel Poilan, who has carried on the, the family bakery since the death of her father uh, 20-some years ago. About 20 years ago, her father was killed in a helicopter crash. Uh, tragic to the bread world. He was like he was a god in the bread world. He was he was he was the top of the mountain, um, and and so the whole bread community you know went into deep mourning, and also not knowing if what would happen. Uh, Apollonia at the time was a student at Harvard University. She was uh, she was studying. She, her intention was to go into the family business, but she was still she was just a freshman, and she completed her 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 time at Harvard while simultaneously taking over the helm of the bakery along with her sister. And she kept the bakery alive while she continued to, you know, uh, educate herself and come back. And then, and since then, she is, you know, is the head of the of the bakery and carrying on her father's tradition. Her father was carrying on his father's tradition, Pierre Poulain or something. Like that. So it was a three or four generation bakery. So, uh, so she taught, and they only make a very few products. Have any of you had Poulain bread? I see a nod. You've had it. Have you? So only a few people have had it here. Unless you've been to Paris, you know, you might not have had it. But there's a couple places in America that would bring it over and import it. Um, it's uh, her most famous bread or his most famous bread because Lionel's really the one who uh, made this uh, popular. The pan, the pan poilan, the bread of poilan. It's about a four-pound loaf, a two-kilo loaf of bread made with not 100% whole wheat, but what we call high extraction flour, fl wheat flour that has been partially sifted so that it's not white flour, it still has a lot of fiber and bran in it, but it's not whole wheat flour. And it's naturally fermented uh, with a starter that they've kept going for you know generations, uh, sourdough starter, and it's made in small batches. And it's not mass produced by a bakery, but it's mass produced by having a bakery large enough to incorporate 20 or so bakers, each with their own little wood-fired oven, making 200 loaves a day. Uh, so that it, he's preserved the craft itself because he felt that it was essential to the quality. Could that bread be produced, mass-produced? Yes. With technology that we have today, you can mass-produce that bread. Would it be Poilan bread? No, because part of the Poilan mystique is that each one's been hand-formed you know, hand and hand-shaped and watched over. But he's personally trained. This goes to training. He personally trained all these young bakers as his apprentices and uh, or now uh, Apollonia is doing the same and and they are the bakers. Apollonia can bake but she's not the baker. She runs the business. Lionel did stop baking after he grew his bakery because he couldn't do everything and he trained people to do the baking. But it was all done to his uh, his specifications and their standards and he inspected every day the batches of bread to make sure it met the Poilan standard. And it's wonderful bread. So, so, and they have a few other breads that they make, but that's the one they're most famous for. So she talked about this idea of preserving tradition, but yet moving into the future. How do you preserve a, a, a traditional technique um, and grow a business? Because now they're making more bread now than they were when her father was alive because they've opened more facilities. They had one in London 
or outside of London where they could make to produce the bread in England. They were going to uh, have a place here in the States. I don't know if the funding ever, if they ever got it launched. Uh, uh, but the, 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 was to, the, the goal was to grow the company uh, so they could make more bread. Uh, and at the same time, uh, be very, very specific about the sourcing of the grain. They had farmers that grew the wheat to their specifications with the properties of wheat that they were looking for because wheat is a living thing. It can it can be grown many ways. It can be hard. It can be soft. It can be red. It can be white. It can be cold weather wheat. It can be winter wheat. It can be spring wheat. depends on when it's planted. All these are, are choices that farmers make. So they uh, formed a coalition between, you know, like of a relationship with the farmers. So they had relationships with the farmers. They had relationships with the, with the people who created the salt. They used uh, Celtic, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Brittany salt, you know, from from the the, the salt beds uh, of northern France. Um, was it necessary to use that salt to make their great bread? Probably not, in my opinion. It's not what made their bread great, but emotionally, it was their part of their connection. So to them, it, it's it's part of what made it Poilan bread. But could you make a bread that tasted identical to that using kosher salt or you know or salt from somewhere else? Probably probably because it's such a small piece. It's only two percent of the of the flour. Um, is the starter critical, their starter? Could you make a bread that good with a California starter or an Oregon starter or a New Jersey starter? Probably yes. But these are all things that made Polan bread was it kept the tradition. And at the same time, it was a craft. And so what she perceived herself, what she talked about in her talk was the, the, the ability to pass on the love of the craft. There's a, you know, one of the top stars at the Pizza Expo uh, at all these pizza is always Tony Gemignani. He does great workshops. Uh, he's one of the most famous pizza makers in the world. And on every one of his boxes, printed on the box, it says, respect the craft. That's become his mantra, respect the craft. So, uh, so part of his methodology of teaching a new generation of pizza makers is to understand that it's a craft. It's not just a business. It's not just a career. It's a craft. And bread making is clearly a craft. So that's part of that, – that was a key takeaway is respecting the craft and training people to honor the craft. And at the same time, she herself has had to grow and learn that, you know, not just to follow the instructions of her father but to understand – the why, the, the, the functionality of the ingredients so that she has more control of the outcomes. So functionality is always, you know, we always teach our students in culinary schools the function of every ingredient. Before they can use that ingredient as a tool, as a tool in their toolkit, they have to understand what the function of that is. If you don't know what a screwdriver does, then it's useless to you. You have to know what, you know, what those, what those ingredients provide, what functions they provide. So that's part of, so she, she mostly just talked about, about the, the craft itself and the preserving the craft um, for the next generation, for the future generations. And that's a tricky thing. It's not everybody is born or, or trained to, or, or desires to be a, a, a craft person. Some people just want to be a successful business operator. Um, we, we had, you know, uh, the, guy, the guy who was the custodian of the Purato Sourdough Library in uh, in Saint Vith, Belgium, where they where they uh, house about 120 sourdough starters from all over the world, and they analyze them, they keep them alive, they feed them on a regular cycle, keep them in controlled environments, and to identify what the different properties are that differentiate certain sourdough starters from other sourdoughs. So he talked about again that the future of bread lies in its past. Well, we have to understand the past, and these some of these sourdough starters are hundreds of years old. Some of them are more recent. There are people here that have sourdough starters in it. Will 
Will Grant from uh, who's, who's in the, speaking at the Pizza Expo here. Um, I think he's even competing, and he's a champion pizza maker. Uh, his sourdough starter is preserved in the St. Fifth Sourdough Library, um, and uh, and so there's a lot, and, and that's only one of a couple places that are now studying these starters to understand the microbiology of them. What is it? What what organisms exist in there, and what do those what flavors do those organisms create and evoke from the wheat? So it always comes back to our fundamentals of evoking the full flavor. Uh, there's uh, there was a somebody from North Carolina State, Rob Dunn, who came to the symposium, who spoke about uh, the yeast studies. It's uh, most people associate sourdough starters. That's unique about them is the bacteria, the lactic bacteria fermentation that creates acids. Bacterial fermentation creates acid. Yeast fermentation creates carbon dioxide and alcohol. And so those two things working together create lots of different kinds of flavors. So some people at NC State are studying yeast, and some are studying bacteria. So they, one of his, uh, one of Rob's um, uh, research uh, people, did a study on yeast and trying to find there's like hundreds of different strains of yeast. The yeast that we use in bread making is called what is it called? Saccharomyces cerevisiae. It's a specific strain that li- exists naturally in, in sourdough starters have that's yeast in it as well, but it's the most potent for creating carbon dioxide. So that's the one that the yeast companies like SAF, and if you visit the SAF booth here or the Fleischmann booth, they, this is what their yeast, you know, can do is create lots of carbon dioxide. So for aeration, but it's not going to create a lot of bacterial fermentation unless they now, and many of them are now developing strains of yeast that also have some bacteria in them as well. But a sourdough starter has that sort of a, a combination. Well, they finding that, that different yeasts will actually evoke different flavors from the grain. And they found the strain of yeast, this is just one case study, they found the strain of yeast that exists in the belly of a particular wasp that lives in North Carolina, was one place that they found the wasp, but it exists other places. But when they were able to isolate that yeast, that, 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 and it's not Saccharomyces cerevisiae, it has another name, scientific name, and then in a laboratory, replicate that yeast to, to grow it and to be able to make enough yeast to leaven a loaf of bread that the flavor of that bread tasted different than the flavor of the bread when it was leavened with Saccharomyces cerevisiae. And they, and, and they said, but to get to the results uh, in a more transparent way, because bread, you know, it's, it's really subtle. The different flavors are very subtle because bread is mostly uh, gelatinized starch, you know, so it's covering up. It's buffering a lot of the flavors. So they used it to make beer, which is l- much more transparent to us from a flavor standpoint a l- and, and much more fussy about temperature controls and stuff. So, you know, you, bread is very forgiving. That's why I like bread more than winemaking and beer making is because, you know, you have to be really precise with those things. And uh, and if you're not a precise person, and I, and I wasn't, um, you've got, you know, you have more forgiveness when you're making bread. You still get great product. But but with beer, you can get, you know, you if you do it right, uh, you get great flavor. And if you do it a little bit, if you're one degree off in your fermentation temperatures, you can taste that. Uh, so they did make beer with the same strain of yeast, and that beer actually outperformed a beer that had won a double gold medal at a big beer fe- a beer you know competition. And, and and people who tasted it said it's even better than it was made with that. So this was just their case case study of how one yeast can be a flavor effect. Yes, question. Yeah, 
That's a great question, and it's a big question that every baker has too. Is is if you take a starter from one region, like the San Francisco sourdough, and move it to another region, does it does it change eventually into a different flavor profile as you as you feed it in a, in a different region and in a different climate? And and I think the short answer is yes, but the other. Th- Part of the answer, and there there are people who sell sourdough starter kits, you know, and and dries, and they say that that they will hold the flavor profile, you know, almost indefinitely. But I'm not sure that that's true. Um, but it's partially true because by the time that that starter, you know, as is is functional starter, it's loaded with a particular combination, a community of microorganisms of bacteria and yeast, including. They all have Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Many of them already have the San Francisco uh, bacteria called Lactobacillus san franciscans, you know, named named by a scientist because it was not because it only exists there, but because it was so predominant in the San Francisco sourdough bread. And the climate, of course, in San Francisco, the sort of foggy, uh, cooler temperatures promote certain flavor profiles that allow for this very tangy sourdough bread. Sourdough bread made in on this, from that same starter on the East Coast sometimes doesn't taste as tangy, at least certainly not after three or four cycles of feeding, because now you're feeding it with flour from a different area and a climate that's different. Other local bacteria are entering the starter and affecting it, but it's still going to be predominantly populated by the original hosts of organisms. So it can persist for a long time with that flavor profile. That's why I wonder, even in in, in Belgium, if they're feeding it there, you know, well, they what they try to do is they try to feed it w- with the same formula, so to speak, that it's been fed. Like they'll use the same flour that the folks in like the uh, the Washington starter that that Will Grant sent them. You know, they try to feed it with his flour. They try to keep as true as they can to it. But can you be absolutely certain? No. But but they're also charting how the microbiome of that of those starters is changing and they can, and they can be precise enough and it's say at North Carolina state they're even more precise because that's a real research laboratory um, and they and they're finding that it will hold on to a lot of its original flavors uh, but all sourdough starters do have this they kind of share certain microorganisms that uh, uh, of bacteria and yeast that pretty much exist in sourdough starters all over the world but then there's other ones that come in that affect and influence flavor. So that's a, that's why this is such a fascinating field. Um, and it's also why, you know, like if you make bread in a particular area, why it's it, it, that becomes your regional f- flavor profile, then you should champion that. You know, you're, if you're making a, a Norwich, Vermont sourdough bread or wherever you are, you know, it's going to be different from the San Francisco sourdough bread Maybe subtly, maybe, you know, if you want it to taste like a San Francisco sourdough bread, there are probably things you can do. Uh, the, the, the degree of moisture in a starter, uh, a wet starter versus a stiff, firm starter can affect the sour tones because uh, it promotes different kind of bacterial growth. Uh, certain bacteria love, you know, wetter environments, some like stiffer environments. Usually the acetic bacteria is the ones that create more vinegary, sour type flavors like the stiffer starters. And the wetter, spongier type of starters tend to like the lactic buttermilk styles, you know. And and it's all sourdough bread because in the end, you know, it has both yeast and it has, um, you know, bacteria. But there's subtle differences and you only can know those subtle differences if you taste them side by side in a very controlled, you know, tasting environment. Yes, there's a question. Is the water yeah, so the question is is the water a factor? 
is is New York City water really essential to make a New York City bagel or pizza dough? You know, that's a question that comes up a lot. And my short answer always is, is no, it's not essential because water is generally pretty good everywhere. There's subtle differences, uh, but but I don't think that it's essential. I've made great bagels and things, you know, in every different parts of the country with with not using New York water. But there was a company, I'm not sure if they're still here, but they use the, the New York system, the water system uh, filtrations, and they, and they can – create the pHs and the, you know all the factors of that are unique to either New York or Chicago you tell them what kind of water you want they can give you that kind of water it can be a factor but uh, I think the m- a more important factor is because again a lot of that water evaporates off is 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 there anything in that water that can adversely affect fermentation chlorine is a factor I would used to think that chlorine you'd want to get unchlorinated water because chlorine can kill. I mean, it's, you know, it's designed to kill bacteria. So what wouldn't it affect flavor? And it, theoretically it should, but you know, I've worked at places where they don't use filtration systems. They just use the tap water that they have and it's definitely chlorinated. And a lot of that chlorine just kind of cooks off, you know, in the baking process, but it's there during fermentation and yet it doesn't seem to affect it. But that's all theory. I mean, we, you, if you're making, if you're still making bread using chlorinated water, then you go, it's not a factor. But I'm, and I can't speak definitively whether there's scientific studies that can prove that the, that the water, um, that unchlorinated water makes better bread. But emotionally, I feel like I'd rather use filtered water or clean water. It should, it should in theory, but there's not enough of it there to kill the amount of bacteria in your sourdough bread because you can still taste the sourdough fermentation. And, you know, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it be a deal breaker in making bread, but it may be a factor in influencing flavor. So, I, and and so, when in doubt, I would just play it as safe as possible. I always had at my bakery. I always had a filtration system to try to make the water as close as possible to, you know, at least untreated water, but without filtering out the mineral. Minerals are a more important factor for flavor than even the, the you know, the the, the pH. Uh, pH is a factor, but but minerals are very important. So if you make bread with distilled water, it's not going to taste as good as bread made with spring water or, or even normal water because the minerals are w- one of the things that our, our palates respond to. Yes? Speaking of water, uh, uh, what, a bread recipe uh, that would be uh, more hydrated using all the other ingredients, percentage-wise, with all the other ingredients, what, what kind of crumb would that usually make? Wetter, wetter doughs, the question is, does the amount of water affect the, the, the crumb structure? As a general rule, the wetter the dough, the more you're going to get oven spring. It's going to, so it should open up to a much op- more open structure. It's like a ciabatta bread is usually 75 to 80% hydration as opposed to a standard loaf bread, which is about 65% hydration, ballpark. Um, so, and, and so usually if you want bigger, more open holes, if you can get more water in the dough, then that's usually a good thing. But the more water in the dough, the less likely it is to hold the shape that you shape it. So again, it's the type of bread you're making as a factor. Um, uh, and also the wetter the dough, the, the the less impediment to creating carbon dioxide. There's less resistance from the dough itself to kind of you know, uh, resist expansion. So all those are, are can be subtle factors. And yet I've had great ciabatta breads at 65% hydration. You know, the doughs were mixed for a really long time, um, um, which I like. I tend to prefer shorter mix, but they're mixed for a long time to create a really strong structure, and it really holds the carbon dioxide, and they let it rise a little bit longer. And when it bakes, it 
gets another 10% oven spring. And it's and they have a structure that looks just as much as open as my 75 to 80%, you know, ciabatta. So there's a lot of different factors, but that's the general rule is more hydration gives you more oven spring, more oven spring gives you a more open crumb structure as a guideline, as a guideline. Um, now, we're going to run out of time before I get to tell you about some of the other key takeaways from this symposium. So we've had, we had a lot of things. Uh, we talked about a lot of things such as using sprouted flour. Sprouted flour meaning, uh, uh, which is another kind of almost preferment, where you, in, you germinate the wheat before you dry it and turn it into flour, or you germinate it, let it sprout, and then crush it into a mash. So a bread that's, that you might uh, be familiar with that uses this technique would be Ezekiel bread. Ezekiel bread is made from sprouted grains, mostly wheat, that have been sprouted, then crushed, not dried and turned into flour. It never becomes flour. It just becomes a like a, a wet mash made from sprouted grains. And then they add additional gluten to it because in sprouting it and grinding it down, it kind of helps destroy some of the gluten properties. They add additional gluten so that it will open up and spread. So uh, Alvarado Street Bread and Ezekiel Breads are two examples of very successful companies that use sprouted flour exclusively, but a lot of people are now using um, sprouted flour that has been dried, where this instead of crushing the, the sprouted wheat, they dry it back to the state of like dried wheat berries and then grind it into flour. And what happens is, is in the sprouting property, sprouting is very enzymatic. And the enzymes are breaking apart the natural starches in the endosperm of the grain, releasing sugars. So if you taste sprouted flour, it's going to be much sweeter than if you just taste the same flour made with the unsprouted grain. Um, malted barley, which is used as an enzyme supplement to breads to get more browning qualities, is basically sprouted barley that has been then dried and crushed into a powder. Um, and, and they use barley because it's high in uh, and diastatic and amylase enzymes, which are, which are useful in bread making. So sprouted flour is becoming, it's a growing category. There's a guy in Pennsylvania, not far from here, who is, has a very successful small bakery where he uses to, uh, pure sprouted you know, uh, uh, wheat, grinds it into a mash, and, and, and pats them into breads and makes pita breads and bagels and pizza doughs from this sprouted mash. Uh, but I, there's also bakeries that are using sprouted flour, sprouted wheat flour or other spelt, other types of grains. Another moving, you know, continuing trend in, in is, is specialty grains, non-standard wheat grains, but wheat-related grains like spelt and, and emmer and uh, uh, there's a few other strains of wheat. Uh, but then there's also the non-wheat grains, and the, and the reason wheat is always the darling, you know, grain for bread is it's the highest in gluten. Rye has half the amount of gluten as wheat. Barley has like a, th a fraction of the amount of gluten as wheat. All the other grains have no gluten at all. So, but they have great flavor. But they won't hold the network, you know, of your of your dough. So, but they have wonderful flavor. So there's a lot of people experimenting with, you know, working with grains. There's a type of grain I want to tell you about. Uh, before we run out of time, that's that's it's something to put on your radar and keep an eye on. It's called um, uh, polycrop, polycrop uh, flour. Polycrop means that four or five or up to ten different products are grown together in an acre in a field, and they are they 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 are uh, what's the word? Um, they support mutually support each other. They actually benefit the the the, the flavor and, and and growth properties of each other. They're compatible, 
and huh? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Exactly. It's all what goes back to the farm, and in fact, leaves the soil after you harvest it in better shape than before you get. It actually is a way of improving your soil. Yeah, there's a lot of benefits, and but it's it's intensive, and, and and the yields of those are not as great as the high yield crops that you know that most farmers use. But it, but the benefits are wonderful, and there's only a few farmers that are growing these polycrop fields. But it includes wheat, it includes it can include anything from rice to corn to rye to legumes. There's even legumes. There's sesame seeds. There's all sorts of things that grow together, and then they harvest them together. And they harvest the seeds and grind all those seeds together into a flour. So it has a flavor unlike anything you've ever tasted before. And you can even taste a little bit of the, the, the bean flavors. But there's enough of the wheat in there to give it uh, bread, bread properties. And you can make great breads. It's trickier. You have to be a better baker. You have to be, you know, uh, uh, but, the, but my colleague at Johnson & Wales, Harry Pamuller, has been really focusing when working with Anson Mills, a, uh, a, a company that, that's dedicated to saving and preserving heirloom grains and seeds. And, and Glenn Roberts, the founder of that company, has spoken at the symposium. You know, it talks about kind of his mission is to preserve these things that, that, are, that represent both heritages but also flavor, protect flavor as well. Um, and, uh, and Harry's been making some breads that are just dynamite. He just two weeks ago uh, did a presentation at the IBIE conference, the big international bread conference in, in uh, Las Vegas, and he baked some breads there, polycrop breads, to show that you can make these wonderful tasting breads. Now, could, will every bakery be able to do that? First of all, the grain itself, the polycrop flour is, is a smaller crop. It's expensive right now. There's not that many people growing it. Uh, you have to charge more for it. Will your customers pay for it? Some bakeries, you know, have a following that is looking for these kinds of things, and some don't. But this is an example of a direction for, in, in terms of the sustainability movement, and sustainability is the key word here. That's like another trend. Is there's a growing segment that are that are very dedicated to the sustainability aspect as well as to the feeding the world, you know, aspect. And so, 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 the conflict is always like. Well, who can afford to eat that kind of bread? Only people that really, you know, already are, you know, the, uh, don't care about money. You know, they, they're, they're not price sensitive. The people who need that bread the, and the nutritional values of those things, they can't afford it. So, you know, where do you draw the line? It's a tricky balance, and, it's, and, and there's no easy answer to that, except that, as Glenn says, you could just do it one field at a time. We're going to do one field at a time. We're just going to try to continue to keep this growing, and eventually it could tip over. It could grow into a movement once it becomes economically viable. Question. Well, uh, that's a good question. Is adding like diastatic malt powder uh, the same as just adding sprouted flour? There's a lot of pa ca parallels. The difference is that sprouted wheat doesn't have nearly as much. It has more diastase than the wheat itself because it, you know, it it, uh, it it comes out in the sprouting, but not as much as say barley. So barley is the most concentrated form, which is why it's used as the powder. You know, but uh, but it has similar properties. Yes, and that's one of the reasons why it's tricky to bake a bread with sprouted grain because if you have too much enzymes, there's such a thing as over-enzymatic bread, and what happens is, is it breaks, the enzymes break apart the starch molecules so much that they become gummy. 
And that's the, the complaint that you get with, with starch. And one of the remedies against a gummy bread is to have a more acidic leavening. So that's why the best rye breads are usually made with a sourdough starter because it controls enzymatic activity. So, and it's always a balancing act. It's a tricky balancing act. That's where the craft comes in. And the, and, and the craft is a combination of, of having knowledge, but also the, you know, the understanding how to work with those ingredients. So, but, but yeah, so the, when you, once you en, uh, introduce sprouted flour to a thing, you're introducing a lot more enzymes. I can't answer the question is, have there been studies on the optimal times? Uh, there probably have been. I don't have that. But that's one of, the, one of the reasons why I suggest joining the Bread Bakers Guild of America because that's the repository for that kind of stuff. And that's a place where if, they've done, if there has been a study and it's been written about, you can, you can find out which issue in the newsletter they reported that and get to it. Uh, and there are other places like the American Institute of Baking where a lot of studies have been done where you can get uh, technical papers that, that the, even the guild doesn't know about that you can get if you go after it. But I don't, I don't have the answer to your question, unfortunately. Uh, but there are, you know, we know that mixing times affect gluten. They have, they have every, every miller has uh, graphs that will tell them what the, mix, the peak mixing times are to get the optimum gluten development. It's usually somewhere between six to eight minutes or something like that. And they have these. A glutamate. Oh, oh, flavor. I'm sorry, flavor. That, I'm sorry. I thought you said gluten. Okay. Yeah. No. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. I, uh, a lot of that's going to be until they have the scientific studies. They're going to. It's going to be trial and error and um, observation. I think uh, for flavor. But flavor is the key. You know, we always say, okay, what is it? You know, is, is nutrition, is sustainability, is wellness the thing that drives uh, success of a business? No. It, it's a factor, and it's becoming more important. It's another trend in the bread world is wellness is a growing trend. So people are responding to wellness factors, and they might be willing to pay more for wellness-based product. That's an important trend, and I think it's important for all of us. But ultimately, we know, you know, in the, in the, chef, in the chef creation business of what culinary schools are about, we, we know that we're trying to uh, have our students graduate with the ability to produce the best flavor. The, the chef who produces the best flavor wins. You know, people don't go to your restaurant because the food looks beautiful or because the, these are all factors, but they don't go there. Uh, they won't go there twice if the food doesn't taste as good as it looks. They, they, they're not necessarily going there only because the food is, is good for you unless it also tastes really great. So you, you lose the battle if your flavors aren't there. And you can, but if you have those other factors, you can really win you know, big time. And that's where we're, I see, again, the convergence of all these factors. So that's part of the trend is the convergence of the wellness communities with the, um, you know, with the functional and flavor. Flavor wins. Flavor rules. I, I call it the flavor rule when people say, can you do this? And, and, can I, and, and can I do this to my dough? And I say, well, how does it taste? And they say, it tastes great. I say, well, then you, you've accomplished the one rule that matters, which is the flavor rule. But, but if it doesn't taste great, then what's the point of doing it? Um, so Lenny, these are a couple of trends. There's a, some new breads. There's a, a new bread that was just introduced at the IBIE uh, conference this, a couple of weeks ago. They had a competition, and it's it's not revolutionary. It's a bread that's like a, a, a cross between a focaccia and a ciabatta. 
And it was developed by a friend of mine who spoke at the symposium named Michael Calanti in, in, in cooperation with a restaurant in San Francisco called Delfina, uh, Pizzeria Delfina and Delfina's. They were an Italian restaurant. And they came up with a bread that is sort of a, somewhere in between a ciabatta and a, and a, and a focaccia. And, uh, and they use it. They call it pane. I think the final name that they came up with it was pane romana. Um, and it's just a name that they gave it just because they wanted it to have an, a Roman um, sort of uh, connection. Um, but um, they entered it in two categories. They entered it in a competition for ciabatta, and they entered it in a competition for focaccia, and it won the gold medal in both. It, it, it was, it, and, it, and it was neither. It was in the middle. Um, so again, put it on your radar. Pane Romana. If you look at, if you, there's an article that came out about it. I think uh, that I. That's how I got the details as somebody sent me the article. So if you just Google it, you probably can get it. Um, Pani Romana or Michael Calanti, K-A-L-A-N-T-Y. Uh, it's just, it's an interesting story. Uh, a couple other quick things. Probiotics, you know, the, the ability to putting, uh, building into your breads, probiotic properties, high fiber, uh, functional fibers. Um, a lot of it developed through fermentation. Whole grains, of course, are are, are more probiotic for us than white flour. Um, there's um, cutting. This is a big thing in the baking industry now. Is uh, we had a presentation by um, uh, uh, let's think of his name here in a second. Uh, sorry about this. I just had a blank out on his name. Um, yeah. Yep. It'll come to me in a second. Um, his bakery is um, Companion Baking in St. Louis. Um, Josh. Josh Allen. Josh Allen gave a great presentation. It turned into a TED Talk, actually, as a result. It was such a good presentation on how he saved his bakery during the pandemic when he was losing accounts left and right. Uh, by approaching it not from how can we make sell more bread, but how can we save more money at the bakery where we're wasting money? And he, and they found that they were losing. He figured out how much waste and stuff the product they were throwing out, and they started actually tracking it. And they made and they put competitions up among their employees on you know who can find the the best methods for how to cut down our waste that can be then turned into savings. And he ended up saving. Uh, uh, improving his bottom line by 30%, significant, so much, so significant that it saved his bakery to, to survive this pandemic until they could start turning things around and getting accounts back. And, uh, and they came up with a number of innovative, uh, you know, like techniques, uh, which makes me think before we run out of time, I should say, if you're interested in following up on any of these and want to hear the actual presentations, um, go to, there's two places you can go to. Uh, the website itself, which is not an active web website, and we're not selling tickets anymore, but you can go to the homepage of the website to see the whole program of the, of the virtual symposium. Go to www.breadsymposium.com, breadsymposium, one word, dot com, and you can see the homepage where you can see bios on some of the people and everything else. Uh, and you don't have to – it won't take you into the virtual conference center because we're not using it now. Those things ended. But it, they, we left the website up there for people to see it. But every one of these presentations was preserved. We did them as Zoom presentations, but then we saved them on YouTube. So I have a website called uh, – uh, I guess it's just called the International Symposium of Bread. If you go to YouTube, 
and go International Symposium on Bread and then put in the name of the speaker. So in this case, if you're interested in what Josh's waste talk was, where he's got very, very well done, very well presented, and some really creative ideas, just go to put his name, Josh Allen, A L. L-E-N, A-L-L-E-N, Josh Allen, and, and, and all these people. Uh, the, uh, the, 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 um, there's a project, one guy reported on a project on what they call the Mission to Mars project. The question was, can we grow grains and wheat and bake in outer space? If, if we're going to colonize other planets, if we're going to run out of space on this planet, is there any hope at all? And the question was, you know, can you, you just like Matt Damon was growing potatoes on Mars in that movie, he, he used Mars as his target. But really, the question was, can we do it in on space stations? Can we grow and can we even bake, you know, in in, in outer space? And there, it's an ongoing project. Not, no, uh, nothing that's going to, you know, that that we can go to the bank on at this point. But the answers are is. Simple answer is yes. We proved that you can make bread in outer space, but can you do it? You know, can, to keep more than one astronaut alive, we don't know. But it, but it's a great study, and he gave a terrific presentation. Um, his name is Serge S E R G G E A M A Y E Amaya A M A Y E. Just Google Serge Amaya Mission to Mars uh, Baking Project, and uh, you get some things. And we had other sem- seminars on the. Education, the educating of, of a baker, not just what, what uh, Apollonia talked about, which was more specific to her thing, but the general education of the next generation of bakers and where are they going to come from. You know, uh, culinary schools are struggling right now because it's an expensive investment and you don't come out of it uh, earning $100,000 a year. You still have to go back and pay your dues. We're, so where are we going to find the next generation of bread bakers and bakers? It's mostly from the ethnic communities, the poor communities, the people who are still hungry to work that hard for their family. Um, it's, it's, it's not easy to find a good employee these days who are willing to work this hard, uh, you know, and, and at the, what we can afford to pay them. Um, so um, we had a whole panel on uh, tapping into uh, both ethnic and minority communities which is somewhat of an untapped. The bread baking community in America has been mainly a uh, white community. It's been, you know, one colored. So the question was, how can we make it more multicolored, you know, and how can we, uh, how can we reach into um, uh, a much larger demographic of people who are already and hungry for this kind of uh, knowledge and experience? So we, we did, Tony Tipton Martin, who's a very well-known writer, organized a panel of, of, uh, Bakers from uh, we focused in her panel on African Americans, but we had other in the uh, another education panel. We talked about the more general uh, populace, uh, you know, uh, uh, across uh, various other ethnicities and communities of people. Um, and, and then there was I, I'm going to have to stop here because we're running out of time. But uh, I would suggest if you want to see more, go to the website. You'll see some of the cool topics. We had a woman who showed people how to make a focaccia garden meaning that you make a focaccia, but you decorate it with, uh, with vegetables and things like that in patterns that made it look like you had just painted a garden landscape, you know, on the top of your focaccia. And she actually made one, you know, on camera for us. And it was fascinating and it was beautiful. And these are ways to create more value, value added products, um, in both your, you know, if you're making focaccia, you could charge more for something that's unique and more artsy like that. Another guy, uh, uh, who's be- going to become more of an important player is uh, 
uh, on the in- internet, he's known as Seor, C-E-O-R, which is, is, is Hebrew for sourdough. But Seor is Guy Frankel, a guy, uh, an Israeli baker who's based out of L.A., who's doing, he's got a phenomenal following on, of his beautiful multicolored breads. He's using unusual grain, grains, um, purple barley, um, uh, you know, grains of different colors and properties, uh, and then making beautiful artisan hearth breads and things like that, and, and, and also doing very dynamic and creative stenciling on top. You can add value to your breads by doing stenciling that's, that's pretty, that's attractive, that's not just contrast like a little flower dust, but actually kind of creates patterns that you know, draw people in. His goal was, how can I sell a bread? If, if the artisan movement can take you know, a $2 loaf of bread and sell it for $8 because people are willing to pay for artisan, how, how, how much can I push that envelope? Can I sell a $100 loaf of bread? What would I have to do to make a loaf of bread I could sell for $100? And he said, well, probably I'd have to put gold in it. And so he created a, a bread with, uh, with, with uh, a gold, gold leaf on top. And, and so he's, he's asking the what-if questions. He's, he hasn't, I'm not saying that these are the answers to bakeries, you know, quandaries, but he's, he's forcing our thinking to go out, expand outside the box. So it's out-of-the-box thinking. These are some other things that came out of it. Uh, let me give you any other. We had Dave Dahl on. He's the, he's the creator and the founder of Dave's Killer Breads which he has since sold years ago. He's not baking anymore at all. He did it. He started Dave's Killer Breads as a way to save his life. He had just gotten out of prison. And he knew how to bake because his family had a bakery in Portland, Oregon. Uh, and he was friends with the, with the family of, uh, um, what's the, uh, uh, the, the, the grain company out of uh, Portland that sells in all the supermarkets that sells gluten-free products and stuff like that. Um, pardon? Bob's, sorry, yeah. So his father was good friends with Bob. So he, so they grew up in the bakery world, Bob's Red Mill. And, um, and so he knew how to bake. So that was the one thing he knew how to do. And so he started working in the bakery, and he got this idea for a, a, a soft, multigrain-type breads that were just better tasting than the average. And he got a following. And, and he put his story, his life story, on the package and essentially grew this and grew a company that within five to seven years of when he started it, he was able to sell for millions of dollars and step out of baking and now pursue his life passion, which is collecting art, collecting African art is his, his area. But it, so he came in, we did, I, I actually got to interview him, you know, on camera in the Zoom interview, and he, he told his story, the, the Dave's Killer story. Um, another, another term to keep on your radar is upcycling, using spent grain from the beer industry, drying it, turning it into flour, and then repurposing it back into bread and other products or snack products. Um, and then I'll maybe just end with this one. Of course, back to the in, in the pizza world, what's happening now in the one of the big trends in the pizza world is pizza makers are getting into bagel making. And uh, there was supposed to be a presentation this morning from Phil Korshek, but I don't think he made it here. I'm not sure if it happened. But Phil has a uh, he, he's a, a very successful pizza maker, uh, but he has a passion for bagels. So he moved to Philadelphia a couple of years ago and. Uh, uh, eventually was able, after working in pizzerias to pay the bills, he was able to open his bagel shop last year, and the lines are out the door. He sells out by 12 noon every day. It's a sourdough. Again, sourdough theme coming back, a sourdough fermented bagel. He's selling every bagel he can make. He can't keep up with the demand. But what's happening is this other pizza makers, Tony Gemignani himself has a bagel shop now in San Francisco. John Arena is playing with bagels now. Uh, Brian Spangler in Portland. They're, uh, bagel making... Uh, is so it's something you can do compatible 
with whether you're doing um, a bakery or a pizza shop, you can do you can work bagels into it, or you can have you know a parallel business. And it's a, it's a, the reason it's it works is that it's a high margin. You know, bagels are a pretty good margin. Um, and like pizza, the, why they're part of such successful businesses is the margins are good uh, if you have a good product. And I think, again, a differentiator. Not everyone's doing sourdough bagels. I don't think Tony is, but it's, it doesn't have to be sourdough. But for Phil, sourdough was part of what drove him to do it, and it differentiates him. I think he's got a demo tomorrow. He's supposed to. Yeah, he is. He's, and I'm supposed to be judging with him tomorrow. We're judging the bagel competition tomorrow. If he, I hope he's, he's okay because if he didn't come this morning for his presentation, it could mean that there's a crisis at the bagel shop, you know, because you create something in a small little business, and if, you, and if it's so successful you can't get away – then you, you, it's hard to – so you have to have a staff. So training is you know, obviously a big part of that because you can't, you can't free yourself to move on and do other things if, you, if it all depends on you to be the one to execute it. So once you master the craft, you have to be able to transmit that, that training, um, and that's where you know, education comes in. So these are just, again, things that are coming down the pike to be aware of, um, other types of pizzas, non-Italian types of pizzas. Uh, we had a really great demonstration by an Israeli baker who made a a, a Georgian a pizza from Georgia, uh, which I guess is you know part of the what we call it. It's the Eastern European you know part of the world called cacciapori. Some of you may be familiar cacciapori. Beautiful pizza. Uh, he did it on a grill. He did it. He baked it on a, a big green egg, but it can be baked in an oven, and it's, it's and it's wonderful. It's kind of a variation of a pizza. It's kind of you know. Uh, 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 artistic looking. It's got a little pocket. You can put your fillings in the center and bake it. And he did one of those um, um, other kinds of similar products, uh, Arias, uh, you know, sort of a, uh, a filled pita type bread that then is grilled, things that are ba- bread based that allow you to expand your repertoire. These are things that are, we're seeing more and more of this happen. And um, again, not using non-traditional grains in traditional breads and kind of finding ways to um, differentiate yourself by by understanding new possibilities. These are sort of the general general. I think we, we hit most of them, um, and you can certainly go to the website and you can see some of the other presentations. Some of them more unique, uh, specific to what your personal interests than I can cover here. But um, let me see what time is it. Uh, it's, yeah, I'm supposed to be down on the floor in a few minutes. Does anybody have any questions before we wrap up? This podcast is going to run a little longer than our usual. Most of our podcasts run for 20 to 40 minutes. This is going to be over an hour. Uh, so if you're listening and you hung in there all the way to the end, I hope this has been useful to you. Um, and again, if uh, I, I, while I'm packing up here, if anybody's interested in a, in a, a signed copy of Pizza Quest, I'll happy, be happy to sign it for you. Um, it's got some great recipes. And, um, and otherwise, come down and visit us at our, our, our podcast booth. We'll be somewhere near where the pizza competition is. I haven't been to it yet. I'll, f- I'll find out when I get downstairs where we are. And we'll be sitting there doing interviews. And then later on in the day, I think I get to be a judge at one of the pizza competitions. And tomorrow at a bagel competition. So it's going to be a pretty full couple days. And then tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock, I'll be giving the, this more philosophical presentation on you know, bread as a as part of our own personal journey of transformation. So I'd love for you to come. I call it bread as metaphor. So come if you can to that. And uh, thank you all for being here today. And thank you for listening. Um, thank you to all of our of our underwriters and sponsors who are making the podcast part possible. We're the only ones here at the expo who are recording uh, some of these things because uh, some of our some of, some of the uh, supporters here, the uh, Lloyd Pans and and Central Milling and um, 
uh, Orlando Foods. There's a number of, of sponsors who, who are helping to cover the cost of us being able to record this and make the podcast possible you know, to the world. So, uh, again, thank you all for, for your support. We'll see you. That's it for this episode. If you want to hear more of our coverage from the Northeast Pizza and Pasta and Baking Expo, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Pizza Quest is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.